and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast, as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to help with some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 16 in the book. So Dr. Smith, the title of this chapter is The First Helper, Emotion. You say in the book that there are three helpers, and I was wondering if you could perhaps give us a a brief uh, reminder of what the three helpers are. Okay, so the idea here is that the, that the non-conscious problem solver, one of the ways that it solves problems is by influencing our free will and making us choose particular actions that are, going, that are deemed helpful for the survival of the species, according to our problem solver. This way of looking at things is just a little bit confusing for this chapter, because what the chapter really does is it's really about those uncomfortable or negative feelings that come up in, in therapy sessions and how to deal with them as a, as a therapist. So that's, that's really the practical theme. But I want to emphasize this idea of helpers in order to underline the fact that our choices, our free will is not determined by the unconscious, but it really is influenced. And if we're aware of that influence and that those influences are purposeful and come from the unconscious, then that helps us a whole lot as therapists. And as it turns out, emotions are are pretty complicated. So you call them helpers because the unconscious manufactures them to avoid negative emotions? In the big picture, that's exactly right. In the more detailed picture, we'll look at the different functions that these emotions may have, and identifying what the function of an emotion is really helps a lot in figuring out how we should respond to that as a therapist. Right. So you say that there are three kinds of helpers. Could you list them for us, please? Uh, Yes. So... So the first kind of helper is, is emotion that pushes our, our, our decision-making in, in certain directions. The second group are conscience-based emotions, and these are things like pride and shame and guilt that have a very powerful influence on what we do, and that's the next chapter. And then the third chapter in these three chapters about helpers are automatic thoughts, and automatic thoughts are also very strong ways that are that are the non-conscious problem solver achieves its goal of influencing our, our free will. So in this chapter, we're just gonna focus on emotion and emotion as a, uh, as a helper. And you, in this chapter, you speak of these emotions or you, you call them primary emotions to yeah. distinguish them from conscience-based emotions. Yeah, now I wanna be a little careful here because uh, Les Greenberg, uh, who invented emotion-focused therapy, talks about primary and secondary emotions. And what he means with primary emotions is they're emotions that respond to a situation and are not 
attempting to uh, manipulate something or do something, those he calls secondary emotions. So here, by primary, let's just say uh, natural, um, uh, ordinary emotions, the way we usually think of them, like sadness and, and anger and, uh, and grief and things like that, responses to situations. But we'll look as we go, we'll look with specific emotions, we'll look more at the different ways they serve purposes. So it seems uh, important to note that going forward in chapter 17, you're going to be discussing conscience-based emotions, which are pride, shame, and guilt, and that are based or determined by our cultural values. And that the primary emotions, which we're going to go into today, are, are the, the more um, um, fundamental ones, like anger, um, grief, mm. sadness, that yeah. have nothing to do with our cultural values. That's right. In fact, those, those, the next chapter is about those, those pride and, and guilt and so on, are always based on a judgment. Okay. And the judgment is according to some sort of principle. So now we're talking about things that are simply reactions to circumstances that don't necessarily involve a judgment. Okay, emotional reactivity. Okay. Okay, so how do these emotions function as helpers? Well, there's, there's several different ways that that can happen. So think about physical feelings and, and those like physical pain is, is an, akin to an emotion. We could call it an emotion and that tells us that we need to pay attention to the body and do something that's going to reduce that pain. Similarly, for more pure emotions, joy, anger, emotional pain are, are very strong influences on what we do. And we do things that are going to take away an uncomfortable feeling or things that are going to enhance a, a positive and, uh, and, and joyful feeling. And then, um, then when emotions are generated in order to influence our, our choices, um, it's the it's the negative in the negative emotions that lead to the behavioral part of entrenched dysfunctional patterns, EDPs. And so when we do things that are unhealthy, generally it starts with with an emotion. Sometimes those emotions aren't even conscious, but a lot of times they are. And and so that's kind of the trigger for or the influence. And that's how you might have the idea of of let's say uh, punching somebody in the nose and and that's not going to make you do it but when there's an emotion behind it then you're much more likely to actually do it and it feels like it relieves that um, that emotion and so emotions also provide positive and negative reinforcement when something feels good we want to do it more when it feels bad then then we want to do something that's going to take away that bad feeling and and finally Emotions, and this is where Greenberg's secondary emotions come in, emotions can be used to intimidate or manipulate or change somebody else's behavior or try to get them to change their mind. And so emotions are a very, very powerful and important part of our social interaction. What are the different ways for us as therapists to deal with emotions as they come up in therapy, to deal with these primary emotions? Right. So before we get into the specifics, then, um, just in a general way, painful emotions need, like, let's say, grief, need to be processed. And that's one of the things that goes on in therapy. Sometimes emotions are just too much. They're overwhelming. 
and, and they're producing a, a, a fight or flight response. Um, and in those cases, we need to worry about emotional regulation because not much therapy goes on when emotions are just too intense. And, and then there are emotions that, that are triggering some um, dysfunctional pattern that we want to help the person not, not to do. And so then we're going to focus on how to detoxify that emotion as well as how to, how to make some, some space between the emotion and the action so the person might not have to, to take a, an unhealthy um, uh, action. And finally then, the, for those, those emotions that are part of nonverbal uh, interactive schemas like the ones to manipulate other people, we want to focus on the whole dysfunctional pattern and and help the, the client become aware of that and begin to gain some control over it. So that's some of the variety of goals that we might have in uh, in working with an emotion, uh, whether it's whether it's processing the emotion or containing the degree of emotion. And there are, there are some therapies in, in the book we mentioned, the dialectical behavior therapy, which is particularly adapted to emotions that are out of control. But processing emotions is part of, of every therapy and every school of therapy. Right. So then when the emotions are out of control, obviously we have to go into um, regulating, helping uh, regulate our client's uh, nervous system, basically. Um, and and once they're back in their window of tolerance and you see uh, some, you know, various primary emotions, um, that's when we really start to do the work of processing. Could you tell us a little bit about, for instance, how to deal with sadness and tears in session? Right. Okay. So that certainly is one of the most common and important kinds of emotion. And I think that the main theme here is that the natural social reaction of, of the person who's having the, having the emotion and often the people who are around them, including therapists, is we're not comfortable with somebody else having painful emotions. And so we want to fix it. And uh, husbands will often say to wives, uh, we'll, we'll try to fix an emotion. And, and wives get angry because they say, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. Well, that's mostly what we need to do as therapists is as long as, a re as an emotion is within some tolerable range is to help the person realize that that's a useful thing, that the mind is producing that emotion because there's a need to process a loss, a, a kind of pain, and so on. Well, how do we do that? What we most need to do is to help ourselves and our client understand what the, the specifics that are generating that emotion. And in general, when, when sad things happen, when unfortunate things happen, there are many different facets. Like, let's say somebody was, was abused in early life. Well, some emotion might have to do with the pain. Some might have to do with, with feelings in relation to the abuser but a whole nother group of emotions might have to do with the people who could have protected but didn't. And, and so that's just a, a little glimpse that every emotional event has different facets. Uh, that's something that I'm, I'm sure that, that you, Emily, have some, some thoughts about how EMDR brings out the different facets of an emotional event and helps a person 
process each one sequentially. Um, yes, absolutely. And it, it takes, you know, it's painstaking work and, and it takes um, any number of sessions to process. But uh, we do this by, by identifying targets you know, so for instance, the rage uh, for the do-nothing caregivers who didn't, who failed to protect, um, or the rage against a perpetrator, the grief of having been existentially transformed, uh, injured, wounded, all of these are, you know, are, are, are subsets that we have to break down and target individually. And then within a single event trauma, we have to break that down sequentially in terms of, and then what happened? And then this happened, and then that happened. And then we process each segment of that entire sequence of events. Right, and th there's, a, there's a wonderful phrase that sort of captures that, it's accurate empathy. Empathy is just fine, but it isn't really effective until it's accurate, until we understand each of those facets and, and, and why it's there. And then that is when the processing takes place. And I think the message for therapists, especially beginning therapists, is keep your mouth shut and listen. But the, you know, the, the, the fix it part, so I mean, EMDR completely aside, you know, when we're dealing with normal sadness and grief, say somebody is bereaved and there's nothing that we as therapists can do and, and we want to help our clients, right? But we can't. We can't bring this person back and here is this person sobbing in front of us and it's absolutely normal, uh, appropriate grief. And one of my supervisors tells me, Amelie, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and it is so hard to do. Right. right, absolutely. Okay, so so assuming that that our our listeners have understood and, and taken in that lesson, then the second one is if you don't feel it in your own emp empathic gut, then you need to ask some questions. Then you need to go through that three-step dance that we talked about some time ago to help the client drill down to actually the, the specific aspects of it. And, and that's where EMDR is a structured way of doing it. But interviewing in general is a way to help fill in whatever is missing. And the way we know something is missing is because we don't feel it. When we feel it, then we know we're getting to then, the, then it means that those neurons that represent this emotion are activated, and it means that we're in tune with them, and that's, those are the signals that healing is going to take place. Uh, so a couple more things about that. One of the concerns people sometimes happen, have about grief is they feel like grief ought to have a certain, take a certain time. And, and I think that the lesson about grief is that it takes its own time, that you can't really legislate how long grief should, should last. And sometimes it lasts a lot longer than a person's friends and family would like. Right. And, you know, without wanting to take today's talk in a completely different direction, I'm nonetheless going to mention the, the great debate that the DSM-5 triggered about bereavement. You know, at first in the DSM-4, it was not considered a disorder. And now it's got its own ICD code and uh, is a disorder, which is absurd, it seems to me. 
spot. Oh my gosh. Well, so there is a point at which grief does become pathological. Sometimes it does get dragged out and prolonged beyond where emotions are being processed and to where I think we could say that the non-conscious problem solver is in some way using the prolongation of grief as, a, as an avoidance mechanism, as maybe avoidance of moving on with life or, or I don't know what. And how do you know that? It's, it's, it's a matter of feeling. It's a matter of conversation with your client. Um, and, and I'll just say that it's, it's not easy to know, but you certainly don't want to make the error of closing off grieving prematurely. Right. And we, we know the nature of grief to, to be cyclical. It comes in waves. Yeah. Right. And, and with time, those waves have more distance. In a, in a healthy, in a healthy grieving, they do. When it's unhealthy, I guess the, the sign is that you don't see that progression, even slowly. Right. And you mentioned that, um, that pathological grief, which I've also heard um, be termed uh, complicated grief, is um, a refusal to accept the loss. Yes. So we're going to get to that in just a moment. I do want to mention uh, sometimes people are afraid of, of letting their grief into their consciousness because they feel like it's going to overwhelm them. The tears are never going to stop. Right. And I think we can do two things there. We can just, we can encourage them. Yes, tears do have come to an end eventually. This process does work. And, and we know that because we have the experience to say, yes, it, it does work. And, and the other thing that we can do is we can help to, um, as we've just been discussing, to break down those tears into, into more, into smaller chunks that can actually be dealt with. And, and we can help our, our person understand that this doesn't all come in one flood. It comes in, in waves, as you said. So, so then there's, there's another kind of tears. And it was very helpful to me as a therapist to realize that sometimes tears are really better described as tears of protest. And this goes back to what you said, that sometimes uh, tears are an avoidance of acceptance. Tears of protest are ones that this isn't supposed to be that way. I don't want to, I don't want to come to acceptance because this isn't right. And right. when that's going on, when you identify, and it's again more of a feel than anything else, that the tears are really not processing anything, they're really about fighting reality, uh, then, then we're going to address them differently. We're going to help our, our client understand that, that they're dealing with a reality that maybe can't be changed and does need to be accepted. Or if it's something that can be changed, we're gonna, we're gonna help them do that. It would seem to me that underlying tears of protest is anger and rage. Yes, absolutely, um, absolutely. And so in a way those tears of protest are really an avoidance of the anger that would come with realizing that you're gonna have to accept something. Mm -hmm. And so we have to we have to then process the anger associated with that. But I know that we're going to get to that a little bit later. Um, the The next primary emotion that you state in in the chapter is, or that you describe, is helplessness and hopelessness. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, and we don't usually identify those as emotions, 
But if we think about it, when, when the mind gets anywhere near uh, helplessness, ultimate helplessness or hopelessness, then that triggers some of our most powerful coping. Uh, those, those feelings, especially early in life, are, are just so powerful that they, uh, that they will lead to desperate measures. And so I think it's, it's well worth counting those things as emotions and, and maybe they don't show up quite on the surface as, as emotions, but we know when a person is struggling with, with helplessness or hopelessness. And, and we see usually their efforts at, at avoidance, their efforts at somehow finding hope where there isn't any or, or avoiding having to, uh, to face that. And again, one of the most common ways that people manifest that is by blaming themselves for, for a situation, especially children, blaming themselves for a situation where somebody else was really at fault, but you have no way to influence them. And so therefore you feel hopeless or you are threatened with the feeling of hopelessness. So you blame yourself and then you can do something about it. Um, and, and that's a big source of self-defeating and self-punishing kinds of behaviors. Now, would you, would you mind if we go into just for a second the, the counter-transference that a therapist who has a, a very um, fix-it attitude could possibly feel when facing a, a helpless and hopeless client? Well, um, thank you. That's, that's a very, very important uh, counter-transference, maybe one of the more common ones that causes us to, to really fail to sit with, with and help with acceptance of a really painful circumstance. As adults, we can accept helplessness and hopelessness. We can accept when the end of life, for example, when, when somebody has cancer, that, that it's, we're going to lose that battle. And, and accepting that is within the realm of possibility. It's not for children, but it is for, for adults. But very often as adults and as therapists, when we come near something that is hopeless, we're in this to fix it. We're in this to help people. And many of us have trouble facing the, the fact that something may not be fixable. And we need to be very aware of that because it can lead us to avoid or to lose empathy or to uh, in some ways skitter away from a situation that we really need to deal with. And, and when a client is actually uh, feeling so helpless and presenting a situation that to the, to the therapist has many plausible solutions and, and the client keeps placing one obstacle after the next. I know that as a therapist, I get very frustrated uh, with that client's helplessness. And I, I get frustrated with my client's helplessness and I, I really try hard to check it within myself, um, to check that frustration within myself. But I often wonder, am I dealing with an inner child here who is actually giving me a big problem to solve and says, here, therapist, here, Amelie, fix this for me. Uh, yes. One way to think about that is that the client is exposing you to the feeling that they have inside. Uh -huh. It's a projective identification. They're, they're transferring to you 
this feeling of helplessness so that you will, will experience it as they're experiencing it. But that's not really helpful. It doesn't really do anything to help the client. So what, what we need to do as therapists is, I, I think of this as using the power of our own powerlessness. Uh, tell us more. So by reflecting back to the client that, wow, you know, this seems like a really insoluble problem. Boy, I, you know, you, you, there are so many barriers, whichever way you turn, and, and there just doesn't seem to be any solution. So what you're doing is you're articulating the thing that they're, they're instead of putting it into words, the client is tossing the ball into your lap. And the way you can give it back is by doing what the client needs to do, which is to articulate the feeling. And as it's said out loud, then either you're going to come to a solution or you're, you're both going to face the fact that acceptance is really the only answer. Uh-huh. Oftentimes with, with helplessness and hopelessness, we can encounter patient's anger. No. Right. So let's get away from that hopelessness stuff. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. yeah. We got to move away. Okay. Something nice and easy like anger. Um, right. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I remember the first time a patient got really, really angry at me, and uh-huh. I had this thought that, you know what, I'm just going to have to listen, and and the picture I had in my mind was of strapping on my seatbelt, and I'm just going to go for a ride here, and and it was pretty hard to do the first time I did it. Um, but, but that was really the answer. So, so anger too is an interesting feeling. It has its, it has its day in the sun and it needs to, and anger also will get processed if it just gets to come out as a feeling. It's, it's when anger gets complicated by consequences that the therapist gets defensive, that the person throws a punch and there's consequences to that. Um, when anger has has consequences, that unfortunately prevents it from being processed. And that's what needs to happen with anger, at least the primary kind, the anger that's just a response to to some sort of pain that's that happens because somebody did something. Now, now, so anger is hard to sit with and it's hard for clients to sit with. That's why we want to take an action that's going to take away that feeling, that's going to relieve the anger by doing something about it. So what we need to do with anger is we need to create a place where it's going to be able to have its day in the sun. It's going to be able to be there in all of its intensity and to be processed. Now, one of the things that is important to be aware of is that anger is always directed at somebody. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's how I know. If, if you heard a story of somebody who got hit by lightning and, and something bad happened, would there be anger? I, I, think, I think you, Emily, had a, a tree fall in your, in your yard last night. Did you feel anger about that? Uh, no, I did no, not. You didn't. On the, so when people have anger, sometimes they say, oh, I'm not angry at anybody for this. It's just one of those things. Or I'm angry at myself because whatever. But you get the feeling that it, anger isn't really, anger isn't an, a, a blank feeling like that. It doesn't happen when there's no perpetrator. And so very often the perpetrator is being hidden, is being 
is being denied. And so our job as therapists is to help our client name who it is that they're really angry at. And a lot of people might be angry at God. Absolutely. Sometimes. And I think God is kind of in that way may function as a stand in for uh, mom or dad or a primary caregiver or, or something like that. But anger always has a perpetrator. Uh, mm -hmm. It just doesn't happen otherwise. Now, another thing that happens is anger kind of gets stored up when it doesn't get processed and people will, uh, will find a, a perpetrator. So go ahead, make my day. They'll find somebody who's going to offend them and then they'll let loose on that person or they'll find a situation where their anger seems legitimate and, they'll, and then they'll unleash it. And for example, when a therapist makes a mistake, that's one of the places where the client may have a lot of anger from a lot of different places and it all gets focused on that one mistake. See, you, you forgot our session, you didn't show up and, and that's why I can never rely on you and, and you, know, you can have a whole storm around, around something like that. When we do make an error, we really need to process that non-defensively because it can become a focal point for anger that doesn't really belong to us and that really does need to be processed. And you know, processing anger about the wrong thing doesn't really help. It doesn't, it's a band-aid, but it doesn't take away, it doesn't help to process the original source of the anger. And that takes a tremendous amount of poise on our part to be able to strap on our seatbelt and not get defensive when we're being attacked by our client. Sure does. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, it's hard. It's yep. hard work. Um, what about anger as a mechanism for avoidance? Uh, sure. And, and the, 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 the common one there is anger that's used as a way of avoiding grief. Uh, and it's quite tricky to analyze that. We need to be patient and, and, and thoughtful about it because, because maybe anger is part of something that happened and is a separate part from the grief. And both of them need to be processed. Or maybe the anger is functioning as a way to stay away from the grief because grief is closer to helplessness and hopelessness. And that's the real um, the, the aspect of it that the, that the client is having the most trouble with. So could you give us an example of how we would address anger as avoidance in, uh, with a client? Probably um, try to process it and see if it, if it does respond to that, if it dissipates. And if it's not dissipating, then that might be the indication that um, that it's covering something up, and and what do you do? Uh, I think you 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 say it out loud, and and maybe you point out that there's that there's maybe sadness underneath, and um, and sort of shift the conversation to the losses that might be involved. And so then I think that maybe this is a good place for us to kind of briefly review the three step dance mm -hmm. because with with avoidance, it's a defense mechanism we might need to pull a strategic retreat, right? Yeah, so that's, if so that's, that it's too harsh of us to, to go directly against the defense mechanism, which is the anger as avoidance. 
Uh, that, that's that's right. You're, you're not going to want to, uh, if the person is not ready to let go of their anger, that would be a time to just to sit back and let it go and let the anger um, flow. And then at some point, we're going to say, you know, this just seems to be going on and on. And, and I'm not sure that that there's something really being processed. Maybe there's another part of this that we're missing. Uh, but but you're you're right. That would be a time when that strategic re retreat might be um, uh, might be important. And and then you also discuss anger as a social tool. Right, especially people with with uh, personality disorders like narcissism or antisocial or some variety of that. Uh, can can use anger as a way of controlling other people uh, and can use it anger and judgment you know you're you're totally inadequate i don't know what's wrong with you kind of thing as a way of avoiding of of making sure that the focus stays away from my own shortcomings my own uh, tenderness and and so it's a very powerful and also as a way of of having your way, people respond to that. When when there's anger, um, uh, people are very often willing to do whatever the the angry person wants, and so it's a it's a very powerful tool of uh, social influence. So another uh, primary emotion that you discuss in this chapter um, are related. There are three: panic, fear, and anxiety. Yeah, so so anxiety. Um, the way the way I work with that in in sessions usually is is to say that that anxiety is the uh, the non conscious problem solver has has spotted something that that for it predicts a, some kind of disaster, some kind of pain, some some kind of of a dangerous situation, and uh, and so what does it do? It pumps out anxiety into our consciousness. And, and the natural thing to do about anxiety is to try to make it go away. And as we know, we've already discussed that, uh, making, trying to make anxiety go away actually makes it worse and in the long run creates an intolerance of, of anxiety. What helps us, since we, we have this non-conscious problem solver that often, since it was sort of programmed and patterned back in Neanderthal times, um, it, it's, it's not always so up to date on, on the real dangers of the 21st century, and it often tells us that something is dangerous when it really isn't. Uh, and so, so anxiety is a part of life. Uh, some people have genetically probably a lot more than others, and, and coping with that is going to be a real challenge through their life. But in everybody can do better in learning to uh, to tolerate and to cope with the anxiety anxiety when it's not appropriate when we feel like there's some danger and there really isn't such a danger like public ex public speaking is the most common source of anxiety and public speaking is actually a very healthy thing to do uh, though back in neanderthal times maybe it was dangerous to um, to have too strong an opinion if you weren't the village chief uh, you know, then you could get ostracized and and banned, and that would mean certain death. Right, 
or that we might, we're afraid that we might be judged uh, for saying the wrong thing in the wrong manner and therefore rejected from the tribe, uh, which would mean certain death too. Right, yeah. So our job as therapists is not to take the anxiety away, it's to help our client to identify what it is and, and to cope with it uh, in, in a more, um, more effective way. So you mentioned um, panic and anxiety as a reason for avoidance, another avoidance mechanism. So, so yes, because they naturally make us want to avoid, then, then anxiety and panic uh, take the, the client further away from whatever the source of it might be. It seems to come out of the blue and, and have no reason. And people will tell you, well, you know, there's, there's nothing happened. Everything was just fine and I got really anxious. And um, so it's a tricky job to come to understand what's going on in the non-conscious problem solver uh, that, that it um, has, is generating anxiety. I'm thinking of a, of a current client who, um, as we've explored uh, some of that anxiety, the first time he had a panic attack was when he was, when things were quiet. He was, he was in a uh, sports game and the action was someplace else and he wasn't involved with it at that particular moment and suddenly he had a panic attack come on. And we've, we realized that, that it's when there's action, then he's focused and anxiety isn't a part of it. But when, when things are quiet, that's when you never know what's going to happen next and it could be really dangerous. And so his non-conscious problem solver began to get worried at that point. And then he had a, another panic attack just the other day. And in talking about it, it began to come up, become apparent that what was going on in that panic attack was he had an impulse to get home. And as he talked about his impulse to get home really quickly, he realized that he was getting, that he wanted to get home to protect others against himself, against his own anger. And so we began to get even closer to what was the primary source, what was going on. The non-conscious problem solver was afraid of his own anger and afraid that he would hurt somebody. Um, so now we've got something we can really work with. Uh, and, and that's kind of typical for anxiety and especially for panic attacks. Anxiety and panic attacks are probably physiologically different, but clinically, we pretty much treat them in a similar way. Mm -hmm. Right, kind of the same genesis, different severity of symptoms. Um, so you mentioned that a, a way of treating them is to confront the worst case scenario, which essentially is exposure therapy. That's exactly right. And, and there we're leading to acceptance, acceptance of some danger. You know, when, when you get in, air, in an airplane, there is a chance that the airplane's gonna crash. And, and one of the ways to cope with that, since it's extremely unlikely, but is to think that, well, what if it did crash? As an adult, one can accept those kinds of things. They do happen. And that's one, that's one way of dealing with anxiety because the inner child and you know, the non-conscious problem solver often functions like a child and children are not equipped to accept death. They're not equipped to accept helplessness or hopelessness. They just, they're, they're programmed not to. They have to somehow 
take um, deal with those feelings in some other way. So the worst case scenario is one way to um, to help people come to acceptance um, of whatever happens, and that's a way to calm anxiety. That's one way. And what about anxiety as a social signal? Well, when we express anxiety, then then other people react. So sort of like anger, only it's a little more subtle, and let's say that gets started in early life and and maybe the primary care caregiver was also anxious and wasn't able to tolerate that feeling uh, i'm thinking of one one client where whenever she felt um uh, sadness or disappointment her mother would go and buy her some kind of a gift well there are people who also will will do something to take away anxiety um and, and thereby indicating that anxiety is intolerable and where does, what does that do with development? Well, it leads the client to be one of those people who, who experiences anxiety as intolerable and has maybe poorly developed skills for just coping with anxiety. Well, you know, it is what it is. So we might want to uh, help our client really with the idea that anxiety is a useful s signal uh, from an evolutionary standpoint but some one that's not always appropriate. Sometimes it's a clue to understanding things that would help us to understand. Uh, so we need to take a few steps back and not react immediately and, and encourage our client to learn to not react immediately. So, okay, so lastly, moving, we're moving on to impulses, which uh, strike me as being uh, really important in, in processing any of the uh, primary emotions that we've just discussed today. Yes. So, so, control. <laughs> so instead of creating a different category, I, I just, I, I put impulses in here because they really function a lot like emotions. Uh, impulses are when, when you have an impulse to do something, if you resist that impulse, we've all, we've all had impulses we wanted to resist. It's hard. And, and your brain really works kind of, kind of hard, it makes you feel really uncomfortable to resist an impulse. It's something that people learn during their school years. They learn to do boring homework assignments and, and, and to do things you don't want to and to, even if you have the impulse to burst out, run out and, and out the door and play, to sit there and read your assignment and practice makes perfect, practicing overruling our impulses in order to do something that we think is useful really gives us a lot of uh, additional range and, and capability. If we can overcome our, our impulses, then we can accomplish a lot more in life, even though it's, it's pretty uncomfortable to do so. And so I think if we think of, of impulses as being again, a, a valuable thing that our non-conscious problem solver is, is popping into our mind in order to get us to do something. These are helpers. Um, but sometimes the non-conscious problem solver doesn't come up with the right solution and we have impulses that we need to resist. And so, so that's really the point here is to help clients understand that impulses are not necessarily automatically to be followed and, and some people naturally have more, are more impulsive, especially people with attention deficit disorder or who are somewhere in that spectrum. And, and it helps them again to realize that 
this is all a pretty natural mechanism, but it's one that with practice you can uh, you can master to the extent that it works for you instead of against you. So this is where mindfulness, which is now a much overused word, but a really an undervalued concept, I think, is so essential to to bring into therapy, right? To really help our patients be self-aware, aware of their impulses, aware of their emotions, and to become that much more deliberate about how they want to respond to those primary emotions that would, if unchecked, drive them to destructive behavior. Exactly. And so mindfulness is kind of taking a step back. But what's interesting about it is that it's a step back where you feel the feeling and at the same time you have some perspective on it. And that's where the healing and processing uh, takes place. And it also is, is how we prevent the immediate following of, of impulses that often leads to negative, unfortunate consequences uh, that we want to help our, our client to avoid. So mindfulness, if there's one key to dealing with emotion, I think that's, that's exactly it. And, you know, this, calls, this brings to mind uh, a quote by uh, Dr. Viktor Frankl, which I'm going to kind of paraphrase, but is between the, the, the stimulus and your response, there is a space, and in that space lie your freedom and your power. And it, this quote really drives my own practice because I seek to, with my patients, increase that space so that they can be responsive to whatever they're experiencing as opposed to reactive. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I love it. Uh, so with that, let's, let's wind up for today. Yes, um, this concludes today's podcast. Thank you for listening to the end. Uh, we hope it's been helpful to you, and we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website at www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, a Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Uh, no, I think you really wrapped it up beautifully. And, and next time we'll, we'll be back with another chapter and this one's going to be on conscious based emotions. So thank you and, and goodbye to everybody. Goodbye everyone.